What's up, guys? It's Kurt from Team Philcraft. I wanted to bring you our sponsors for this podcast. First up, Roca, premier eyewear that's ultra lit and will stay on your face. It's used by Olympic gold medalists, and it's great for overlanding and outdoorsmen and outdoors women. You can go to www.roca.com, check them out if you'd like to buy, and they're on Instagram at Roca Sports, and you can use code FIELDCRAFT15 for 15% off store-wide. Next up is Boss Strong Box. It's American-made from 16-gauge steel, three-point locking system with single-key entry. It's similar to an in-home safe. It's got high-security Medico locks. They have top loaders, pull-out drawer options depending on the application. They have a box that will work in most vehicle applications. They're currently being used by local police departments as well as federal agencies such as U.S. Border Patrol, the Marshal Service, FBI, and more. Their boxes are built to secure the things that you need secured. And you can get a hold of them at www.bossstrongbox.com or you can use code FEELCRAFT for 25% off any Boss Strongbox item. Pretty awesome. That's a great discount. Next up, US Night Vision. You can reach them at www.usnightvision.com. Use code FIELDCRAFT for 10% off anything on that website. Night Vision's expensive. Definitely use that code. You can follow them on Instagram at US Night Vision. They are a good company and they help support us. So support them. Next, guys, uh, I wanted to throw in real quick, if you're interested in what we've got going on, make sure you text SURVIVAL to 55498. That's 55498 to see what Fieldcraft's going on and to tap into the discounts that a lot of our business partners, strategic business partners, give us. Subscribe to the Fieldcraft Survival channel on YouTube. Follow us on Instagram at Fieldcraft Survival, at Fieldcraft Mobility, and at Fieldcraft Survival Fit. Follow Mike's personal page at mike.a.glover, and mine is Kurt underscore Team Fieldcraft. We're excited for this next podcast. We've got David Burnett making a Night Stalker, a former crew chief for an MH-47 out of the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment. Get ready, guys. Here we go. What's going on, guys? We're back at the uh, Fieldcraft Survival Podcast, and I am the only host that's here today. Uh, so we have a special guest today for you. Uh, I'm actually in Denver right now at the Outdoor Retailer Show, uh, walking around and talking to some of our partners, our strategic business partners. And so uh, we wanted to reach out to a person that we've been talking to via social media and it's somebody that uh, I actually vetted uh, before we had on the podcast because I want to make sure that everybody is legit that comes on. So I'm excited uh, that we got the opportunity while I'm here in Denver to have uh, a guest that is a former crew chief from the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, uh, 160th SOAR. You may have seen some stuff on Instagram and other social media platforms that talk about night, night stalkers don't quit. Um, so today... Uh, with me, uh, like I said, your only host, uh, Kurt from Fieldcraft Survival, is David Burnett. And David was a 160th crew chief, uh, a Night Stalker crew chief, and welcome to the podcast. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. I'm glad we could finally link up and make this happen. I know it's been a, a long time coming, but, you know, we're finally making it happen, so... Everything just kind of worked out and fell into place. Glad to be here. Yeah, so so to give you guys an idea of where we're recording right now, if it sounds a little bit uh, less than stellar from what we've been you know, normally putting out, uh, we've been recording in Skillset uh, Studios podcast in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, like I said, I'm in Denver, Colorado right now, and uh, David and I are sitting in my Airbnb uh, with a buddy, Cody, who's listening in. <laughs> uh, and we were just joking about, you know, being on a podcast and being nervous and talking about all this stuff. And, um, you know, obviously wanted to make this conversation interesting to the listener. So again, we're here in my Airbnb in communist downtown Denver, <laughs> which I've had some interesting experiences down here. Um, but, uh, but anyways, excited to have you on the podcast. Uh, like you said, we have been talking about this for a while. I've actually had people on Instagram DMing me to have you on our podcast uh, because they were really excited about uh, something that we'll talk about later in the podcast that you have coming out. But uh, they were like, hey, you have to have this guy on your podcast. And so 
Yeah, you have a fan base that you don't even know about. Yeah, <laughs> he's smiling no and he's blushing right now. Um, but anyways, but they wanted you to be on the Field Crafts Revival podcast, and Mike and I did too. So uh, the fact that I'm here and we get the opportunity to do this, I'm grateful that you came down um, from your place to do it. So welcome, and let's get into it. So uh, 160th Crew Chief. So um, what aircraft, or, or let's start here. So you tell... Uh, the audience a little bit about yourself or the folks that are listening, just so we can get an idea and then kind of lead off with how one would start uh, to get to the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment. Yeah, absolutely. So I um, actually started in the regular Army a Detachment of 101st there at Fort Campbell. Okay. Um, 563rd ASB Aviation Support Battalion. Okay. Did a 13-month tour with them right out of AIT. Uh, this was 08, 09. And I was just an aircraft maintainer working on Chinooks. Okay. And I just didn't feel fulfilled. Yeah. I, I saw guys leaving the wire every day, every night, and I'm, I'm sitting there in a hangar wrenching on the aircraft feeling like I am not contributing in this fight like I had – manifested in my mind right so you joined the army with uh with what you thought it was going to be like so you had kind of your your mission or your end state or your purpose for joining the army and then that uh when you you know belong to this uh the regular army aviation unit the things that you were doing down range you weren't fulfilled in that yeah absolutely so obviously the recruiter promised me a bunch of things that never happened as always <laughs> and uh i was told that after AIT, I'd be uh, thrust right into a flight slot, and I would be behind a gun on a Chinook, flying right. all the time, contributing to the fight. Right. Uh, it turns out after AIT, that wasn't the case, and they said, we'll put you in this unit because these are the needs of the Army. You don't get to choose. Right. So the, the dream sheet, list your top three places <laughs> you want to be stationed is a bunch of BS. You got like number 69 <laughs> out of the top yeah. three. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so um, back to that first tour, I said, uh, went to my platoon sergeant and said, what, what things do I need to do in order to become a crew chief and get into a flight slot? The unwanted answer was, you can't. You're in an AVIM, aviation unit, which meant... There are no flight slots in that unit. You are at an intermediate uh, aviation maintenance level. So all we do is work on aircraft here. Okay. So, sorry, buddy. Yeah. And Which so, definitely wasn't the answer you wanted. No, <laughs> no. Far from it. Um, but what I come to find out later on is something that my um, section sergeant was reluctant to tell me mm -hmm. was that I could apply for a special operations aviation regiment 160th. Okay. And I had heard about him vaguely, never saw him at Bagram. That's where my first tour was. Sure. Uh, because I was on days mm -hmm. and they operate nights and there wasn't a 160th attachment at BAF at that time. So right. another reason I had never seen their aircraft. Right. And BAF was the acronym that we use for Bagram Airfield. Yeah. When you're flying out of the, that airfield. Yep. Absolutely. And I got to keep in mind that. Yeah. Some no, no. Of the yeah. It's good. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I begin to research uh, 160th. Right. After learning from my team leader yeah. who was below my uh, section sergeant. Sure that I could apply for 160th. Right. Uh, it's not guaranteed. Uh, mm -hmm. The application is lengthy. Mm -hmm. And so I begin to research and more research, more research. Well, and this is why you were on the deployment. Yep. Okay. This is every waking hour I had after leaving the hangar and going back to our hooch was yeah. trying to find an internet connection anywhere I could sure. and trying to find everything I could about this unit. And the more and more I dug into it, the more and more I want it to be a part of it. Yeah. And so I'm like, all right, sign me up. You know, what do I have to do? So I begin this application process. Right. And, you know, it's lengthy, long questionnaire. They want your PT scores, all, all this paperwork from, you know, your prior experience in your current unit. And sure. all this stuff I had to gather from place to place uh, from different people while I'm deployed. Right. Which was a process in itself because a lot of that paperwork stuff 
you, people, staff doesn't bring on the deployment. So it's like stuff I needed that it was hard to get. And right. It's, got, yeah, got, it's I, difficult to access that kind of information when you're on a deployment. It's not like it's readily available and yep. you can just, Hey, here's my personnel files and here's a copy of it and yep. sending it over. Right. Yeah. So, but fortunately, uh, it took some time, but I gathered everything together, got my packet completed and, um, you, you turn it into your first line supervisor, which was my section sergeant. Sure. The one who was reluctant to tell me about one sixtieth. <laughs> right. And I, I'll get into it later, but there was a reason he was reluctant to tell me about one sixtieth. Okay. Um, so I give it to him. I feel like one was you were a hard worker, you were squared away, so they didn't want to lose you out of the unit, which is typically what I saw in the army. If you were worth a damn, you know, your unit never wanted to see you leave. Right. Um, or, you know, the flip side was, is somebody had tried to go to that unit at one point yep. and they didn't make it. And so they had like this weird, um, kind of not a vendetta, but it was like a, a negative opinion of the whole process because they hadn't made it. So, um, yeah, anyways, go ahead. Sorry. So you actually, <laughs> you actually nailed it twofold. And I don't know if you were Intel prior or you just... <laughs> No, it's, just like it's called a long time in the army, yeah. and <laughs> yeah. I, I played that game several times as well. So, yeah. So no, that was exactly it. But I'll I'll get to that in a second. So he assured me after I handed it to him, I'll get this taken care of. So in my mind, what he's going to do is give it to the platoon sergeant. Platoon sergeant looks it over, gives it to the first sergeant. Right. But and, it ended up in the shitter at Bagram. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it did. It did. He it, walked straight to a fucking porta john yep. and threw it in a porta john and yep. that was his way of taking care of you. Anyway, sorry. I had to throw that out there. No, you nailed it. I'm now thinking about it. I'm sure that's exactly what he did. <laughs> yeah. So assures me it's gonna be handled. Um, two weeks go by and I still don't hear anything back. And, you know, I'm, I'm a PFC at the time. So, you know, I'm kind of yeah. shrugged off. You're at the bottom of the totem pole for yeah. sure. Yep. Yeah. So I didn't want to uh, raise any flags or be that guy who's sure. like nagging like, hey, what's happening? Why yeah. is this taking so long? So I'm still new. And typically that doesn't work with sergeants anyways. They yeah. tell you to go fuck yourself. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so um, anyways, reluctantly I go up to him and say, my 160th application, what's, what's the deal? Sure. In the nicest way I could. Yeah. At all, at parade rest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Controlling yourself, having the most, uh, you know, the best military bearing you can like, yep. Hey, what is up with my packet? <laughs> yep, exactly. So, uh, he, um, says, Oh, I totally forgot to tell you. I lost it. Well, I've been meaning to it's tell It's in the you. shitter. Bro. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I knew I was on to something, you know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Anyways, go ahead. Sorry. I've been man. meaning to tell you to get me a new one. So I'm like, you know, so frustrated, yeah. parade rest, and balling my face. I can see it in your bag. eyes right now. Yeah. Like you're extremely focused and looking at me like I'm your fucking section leader, <laughs> and I'm not. I just want to I just want to throw it out there. It's not me, dude. I didn't fuck you, right? No. <laughs> Uh, yeah, sorry. I, it's just, uh, intense, <laughs> yeah, intense to yeah, relive that. I can, t I can see that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, we get done in the hangar that day, head back to the hooch, miss chow because I'm like this asshole. So I got to do everything in my power now. Now I'm more driven to get the fuck out of the unit. Cause this, this guy is only making my life here worse. Right. Straight to the bee hut, the guys figure out what happened. They bring me back chow, which is like the small things when you're deployed that kind of lift you up. Sure. And people don't realize it if they've never been downrange, but it's like little shit like that that kind of, you know, helps you get through a, a long deployment. Sure. Especially when you're low on the totem pole and you feel like everyone's just spitting on you. So get back to the hooch, pull up my application and realize I didn't even save it. So I'm like, oh my gosh, this lengthy fucking yeah. application. Now I have to redo it all. Right. So I end up redoing it all that night. And then I have to pull all the paperwork again from all these people. who I'm sure they don't want to see me because I already pulled strings to get all this stuff in the first place. Sure. Finally get it all together again. Make sure I make copies of everything like I should have done in the first place. Right. Um, Tough lesson to learn yep, for sure. Yeah. Get it all together. Hand it back to him again. 
So this time he double assures me that it'll get taken care of. He <laughs> apologizes, apologizes about yeah. what happened last time in the in the most dickish way that you can apologize. Like yeah. it's not. If we tell real. this story five more times on the podcast because he <laughs> threw it in the shitter five more times, this is going to be friggin'. I feel like people are going to tune out. Now. <laughs> um, so I'll try. I'll try and shorten up this this process. No, no, no. But, you're good. No. But I, I, I have. I, I just have this weird feeling that the guy that was in charge of you is like, "Fuck one sixtieth. Yeah. If I can't go, nobody goes. Yeah. You know. So yeah, sure enough, he. Uh, doesn't give it to the next uh, guy in in line in the chain of command, and um, I go go to him. I, I give him a week this time. I I think may, maybe a little longer than a week, and I say, "Hey, application one sixtieth packet. Where is it? Still at parade rest? Still trying to you know? Still the yeah low guy on the totem pole?" And uh, he says, "Oh man, sorry, I forgot about that. Just give me another one." And I'm like, "This is fucking ridiculous," <laughs> yeah. and. Um, so this time I'm like, fuck it. I'm going straight to the first sergeant. Yeah. I know I might get in a lot of trouble for this, but yeah. it's like the only way it's going to get done. Yeah. Which which I just want to bring up real quick for everybody that's listening. You know, we get a lot of engagement in talking about people that are driven and they want, um, you know, you want to do something. Even in the Army, right, there's a way to, to go about doing that. I think it's a great highlight just what you're talking about. You try to do it the right way. Um, at the end of the day, you wanted to be in one sixtieth, and your first line supervisor was, you know, for whatever his personal or professional reasons were. I don't think they were professional. I think they were personal. You know, somebody is not, you know, helping you facilitate you becoming a better soldier um, and kind of stepping things up and going to the next level. But I think it's. Uh, I just want to point this out real quick. I think it's it's cool that you went to the first sergeant, and you know, I'll let you tell the rest of the story, but. Um, but it shows a lot of like perseverance and drive, um, because you wanted to be part of the unit. And so I just wanted to highlight that. I think it's cool, man. Yeah. Thanks. And I, I think it's important, you know, to kind of snowball off that. I don't want to get too, too much off track here, but when you get out of the military to, to, to maintain that persistence and drive, cause sure. a, a lot of veterans kind of put that drive and persistence that they had in the military by the wayside right? and just kind of start feeling deflated, which, you know, you were driven and persistent at one time. Right. Let's get it, get it back, get it going again. Yeah. Don't forget where you came from yeah. and what made you that way. And I a hundred percent agree. I think it's a great, it's a great point. So jump back into the story and yep. tell us. So you went to the first sergeant and then the packet went where? Yep. So first sergeant gets it. Uh, he's happy that I'm um, moving on with the career and trying to better yourself, better myself, yeah. and um, take the career to the next level. Pretty much. Sure. And he's excited to help me out, and he said, uh, "I'll get this taken care of." Same words that were spoken from my uh, section sergeant, mm-hmm. uh, but they rang true this time. Yeah. I, I could see the sincerity in in his eyes and. Sure. Uh, his body language. Uh, and he was a good first sergeant. Yeah. So, um, like another week goes by and we had a day off every 14 days, um, working on aircraft. Sure. And by this point, we're three months away from ripping out or going back home after a 13 month deployment. And so by this point, I kind of had a day off ritual. Yeah. I would go to, there was a Burger King by the PX and get some double Whopper camel (laughs) patty thing. Got your Whopper on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It was, the meat was actually made from camel spiders, camel, donkeys, and goats. All the above. Yeah. Which is, hit the spot. Apparently are fantastic sources of protein when you're on a deployment. So, (laughs) yeah. I mean, you gain like 20 pounds of muscle immediately after (laughs) eating this triple. Uh, multiple protein source Whopper, which is, you know, that's a good highlight too. <laughs> yeah, that was great. So grab my Whopper, head back to the hooch and, you know, everyone's gone at the hangar. So it's just, it's just surreal being in this quiet hooch because, you know, the walls are plywood that the, they don't even go all the way up to the ceiling. So yeah. when it's, it's real first line accommodation is yeah. what you're saying. It's, yeah. it's shitty canvas tents and plywood and yep. sandbags and all the first rate stuff you get when you join the army. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so to, so to have the whole place to yourself, it's like you're at home, you know, Netflix and chilling all on your <laughs> yeah. own. Uh, so I, I'm eating my, 
burger and watching, I think I was watching Anchorman or something because (laughs) I, and I remember the movie because I remember this moment so well. Yeah. And the day's going on, you know, you rack up quite the DVD collection when you're deployed, as you know. And, um, the door just swings open. Yeah. And it's hinged by a wasp. I feel like you're going to say or tell this story like a 160th pilot walks in and he's like a fucking straight gunslinger and he's like, you made it. Oh, man. No, anyways. Maybe sorry. maybe when we make it a movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not quite. Yeah. Uh, so this, this cheap plywood door in this shoddily constructed uh, hut yeah. is hinged by uh, three full water bottles hanging on a 550 cord. <laughs> right. I'm sure you know. Oh, yeah. The old special. Yeah. Uh, uh, so the door flings open and I hear one or two water bottles get flung across the room and just completely explode. Yeah. And I hear, Burnett, you pussy, get the fuck outside right now. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's my section sergeant. I can yeah. tell by his voice. And I'm like, you know, starting to shake a little because I'm still yeah. PFC nothing. Yeah. And I'm like, oh man, what did I do? And so I go out on the porch. The The porch connects a bunch of other huts, so it's sure. kind of a long porch. And uh, get out there, and he just starts smoking me. Yeah. And for those listening who don't know, I just get drilled with exercise after exercise. Yeah, yeah. And so he's front lean and rest. I'm doing yeah, push-ups. Yeah, you're doing push-ups. He's just – he's crushing you. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, tells me to roll over and do flutter kicks. And, you know, there's moon dust out there. I'm sweating. <laughs> I'm getting just covered in dirt and dust. And, um, he just proceeds to yell at me about the chain of command, why it's in place, why it's important. Of course he did. He had found out that I turned my application into the first sergeant and just completely overshot him. And, uh, which I mean, you know, let's, uh, I mean, facts are facts based off of what you already talked about in the podcast. You tried to do it the right way. Um, you wanted to go to that unit. You did it twice. The guy fucked you. Yep. And so you decided to go to the first sergeant. So I'm actually applauding you for that because I think it was the right thing to do because you wanted to serve in 160th. So yeah. good on you, man. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Only if you were there during that time. Yeah, right. would be like, don't worry. It's okay. This is a good thing. You yeah. did okay. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I feel like a complete asshole, a horrible soldier at this point. He's yeah. just totally degrading me as a person right uh, or that's what i feel anyways <laughs> yeah. and um so he's just drilling me and uh finally like an hour later he goes inside it back into the hooch right um and my team leader walks around the hooch corner on the outside and i'm just there just still doing flutter kicks and he like comes over stands over me and he's looking at my face he's like well, that's a good intro into what you're going to be getting into. I kind of look at him dumbfoundedly like, I don't know what's happening at this point. I'm, yeah. so, I'm so physically exhausted, right? muscle failure. <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, you got in. And I'm, I'm still like dazed. Like, what do you mean? I got in where? And he's like, Green Platoon, you're going to 160th selection. And at that point, I just start kicking like I have never kicked before. <laughs> Like, yeah. I'm like, you want me to do flutter kicks? I'm going to, you want yeah. me to do a hundred? I'm going to do 500. Yeah. Like, I was right? so excited. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So that's how I got the news that I got into, uh, try out. You're not actually in the unit yet. Right. So, so we're still on deployment. Yep. You're getting smoked. Your leadership, your kind of, your first line leadership is, is, uh, one guy's upset, but the other guy comes in and says, Hey man, you, you made it. You're going to go to selection. Yep. So that deployment ends and then you go back to Fort Campbell in yep. Kentucky. And then what happens? Go back to Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And then, uh, I'm there for a week back to Colorado for some, uh, R and R week of R and R then sure. back to Campbell. I get back to Campbell. I'm there for a day. Next day, straight into Green Platoon. Okay. So you were just on a how long deployment? 13 months. 13-month deployment in the 101st Airborne Division as an aviation mechanic, essentially. Yep. Come straight back. You dropped your packet while you were on that deployment, and then you come straight back, get a week at R&R, and then show back up basically to do the to, to try out for 160th. Yep. Yeah. And so super motivated. If you want to know what motivation and dedication looks like, that's that's an, a great example of what that looks like. And I shared with you 
my story, which we won't go into it with me coming back from a deployment and then going straight to special forces assessment and selection. Yep. But a lot of the same motivation and drive, like you want to be part of something, you fucking make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. Which, which I think is awesome. So go ahead. So you get, so you get to uh, selection and assessment for 160th and how does all that go? Yep. So that's referred to as green platoon. Okay. And I'm, so I was assigned barracks for my old unit that they had just built while we were deployed. Right. And those barracks are super nice and conveniently happen to be five minutes away from where Green Platoon takes place. Okay. So <laughs> guys coming from different duty stations have to stay in the 160th Green Platoon holdover barracks where guys stay who are trying out yeah. for 160th. So you had a little slice of kind of... Well, I'm not gonna. I won't call it home because a barracks room necessarily <laughs> yeah. isn't home. But at least it was your spot. Yeah, absolutely. So everyone living in the barracks I was in was still. Yeah, um, they were part of your aviation. Yep, yeah, yep. or your old aviation. Right. Room. So they let me stay in there while I went through uh, selection. Because if you sure. don't pass or you get kicked out or you quit while you're there, you're you just going go back, back. Needs of the army. Needs of the army or your or old your old unit. unit. Okay, yeah. it makes sense. So get to get to uh, holdover platoon and come to find out that there's a current class in. So we kind of hang around these barracks that all these other guys were staying at, not me. Yeah. Uh, these were older barracks, and we we're just kind of doing bitch work until the class going through graduates. So the the technical term or explanation for bitch work is <laughs> <laughs> is when you're a an enlisted guy in the army, uh, you're doing all the shitty detail work. Uh, which, you know, we the Army has its own subculture and language, which, uh, I mean, I find funny and I still use today. And civilians look at me like I have a dick growing out of my head. <laughs> uh, Cody's pointing at me right now. He's sitting across the table from me laughing uh, because, you know, he's he's one of the civilian guys that I like to throw acronyms at that drives him absolutely insane. So and he's looking at me like I have a dick growing out of my head. So anyways, but uh, but yeah, so uh, so so you're doing the bitch work. Yep. <laughs> yeah, so holdover platoon, washing rocks, filling water fountains, you know, crazy stuff that you're <laughs> like, well, why am I doing this? Yeah. Um, but they also are starting to, you know, we're doing PT every day, three to five times a day. Okay. And that's physical training. Yeah, so yeah. they're getting you ready. Yeah. yeah. So it's not like, okay, we're just going to do details and yeah. then you're going to get thrown into this. So then you get to selection and then obviously you make it through selection or yeah. else we wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> yeah, um, no, we wouldn't. So you make it through selection, you get to 160th and you were in 2nd Battalion Alpha Company, which, yep. which what, you know, what air or what air platform did you work on? So I worked on the CH-47 Chinook in the big army. Right. And the uh, 160th uh, SOAR, Special Operations Aviation Regiment, has a version of the Chinook. Yeah. It's not the CH-47, it's the MH. Right, got it. So it's the Chinook on steroids pretty much. Yeah, got it. We got all the Gucci kit, the the, the mini guns, bigger oh, yeah. fuel tanks, a yeah. bun bunch of other stuff. The that, good stuff. Yeah, the yeah, good stuff. The good stuff. When it shows up, motherfuckers know what's up. Yeah. <laughs> and so I didn't want to work on it anymore. I did that. Um, well, let me, we kind of fast forwarded real fast. I didn't want to jump ahead. So your experience in selection for 160th, um, you know, for people that are listening, cause I, you know, we have a lot of people that listen that are aspiring to join the military or they just want to know what those processes are like. So your actual experience in selection, as far as like difficulty level and what you experienced, like, was it, was it everything that you thought it was going to be? Because I know like speaking from personal experience and having gone through, you know, a selection and, and being assessed and like all these things, you know, you have what that's going to be like in your head, but then you actually experience it. And then, you know, you kind of, uh, well, then you come out of it educated, right? And you have a, an educated opinion on kind of what happened. So what was your experience like there? So was it was it everything you thought it was going to be? Was it difficult? Was it, you know, what you expected to get into this top tier aviation unit? Yeah, so it was everything that I expected and 100 times more. Okay. Uh, it was very physically demanding. Mm -hmm. 
and um, throw in sleep deprivation and hunger deprivation in there sure. while you're going through, and it makes it even worse. Right. But the one concept that they really hammered home during the whole selection is thinking outside the box mm-hmm. and being a, a teammate, a team leader, uh, and working as a team. Sure. Because if you're working as an individual, you know, your buddy's going to fucking die. Right. Yeah, and that doesn't really brief well in the military in general, especially when you're trying to become a part of the special operations community. A lot of what makes that community special is actually working in small teams, um, you know, and doing some very difficult jobs. Yeah, and one one thing they did on the very first day, and I'll never forget it, is uh, we had this insane packing list um, yeah. just just ridiculous stuff that you're like why do I even have to do this but it, it comes down to attention to detail sure um, so worked a long time on the packing list everyone in the class did before actually starting day zero <clears throat> so we get there and we have our, our packs in front of us in formation in front of these old bunkers mm-hmm. and the instructors tell us to what they're referred to as the black shirts Mm-hmm. They tell us to grab our stuff and dump it in one big pile out in the in front of these bunkers. Right. And so everyone goes to do that. And then they continue to smoke us. And then after that, they say, okay, go get, go get the gear and put it back in your bags. Right. So the whole class, 80-something of us in all, run over to this giant pile just full of uniforms, shoes, <laughs> canteens toothpaste do everything right and we're trying to locate our stuff yeah because it's all labeled each thing had to be labeled i feel like i know where this story is going and i bet bet you teamwork exercise yeah Yeah. i I bet you do it doesn't matter you don't have a name anymore you're part of the team yeah so everyone's frantically trying to find the shit with their with their name on it right and put it in their bag yeah and they say okay you have one minute uh, obviously, we're not going to do that in one minute. Right. Too slow, you know, back to smoking you. Or there was a, a trench that they called the pit. Right. Just conveniently placed. It was a fire hydrant right in front of the thing. So they'd turn it on and we'd be having to crawl through this pit. they say, okay, now go back and try it again. Yeah. And this went on for, I don't know, five hours. This was day zero. <laughs> like, great. What did I get myself into? Right. So... That pile just remained there all day long with them saying, okay, go, you have 30 seconds. And slowly but surely, you know, everyone was picking their things and slowly filling their bag while we're getting, you know, smoked in between. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you know, they they give the lesson, just like you said. If you're going to pass this course, stop being selfish and thinking of yourself. That'll, that'll get your buddy killed. Right. And so it doesn't matter. Were you guys all standing there and you were like, ah, yeah, yeah. Like it was like one of those (laughs) moments, you know, where you're like, I don't know, the sun came out of the clouds or something like that. No, it was, it was, (laughs) you know, and I, I was a specialist now. I got promoted downrange. So, and some of the guys there were lower ranking than me. So I, I, I felt like I failed them almost. I'm like, yeah, but there were other higher ranking enlisted guys guys that were involved in selection. Yeah, but uh, that really hit home, and I'll never, I'll never forget that day. Thinking as yeah. a, as a team, not as an individual. So you make it. Uh, you're a crew chief, or first a crew member on MHs. Yeah, uh, so on the forty seven, and then you become. You know, obviously, uh, you move up from from just being a part of the crew. And so we were talking about it a little bit, you know, before we started the podcast, because you know, you and I were kind of. I think sharing some war stories, which is fun, you know, when vets get to do that and talk about the experiences that they've had and where they've served. And so, um, you know, so describe what happened. So you make it through selection, Mm -hmm. you show up at the unit, and now you're a member of uh, an MH-47, you know, which is a special operations component helicopter uh, for, you know, 160th Aviation Regiment. Um, So what was that like? Like... So I thought, well, they, they gave us our uh, berets prior to graduation mm-hmm. at the last day at Green Platoon. Yeah. And then when they handed us our berets, they told us which company we were going to. Right. Because you don't know where you're going until you graduate. Right. It's not like, here are your orders. You, you have a month to plan to PCS over to here. You, you don't know where you're going to end up. Right. So uh, he handed me my beret and said, you're going to uh, Alpha Company 2nd Battalion. Mm-hmm. And I don't – anything past Green Platoon is 
foreign to me. Because mm-hmm. I was, you know, regular army. I had no idea what that meant. Sure. So I kind of looked at him before I went to go sit back down in my seat and let the rest of the guys get their berets and their assignment. And uh, I said, what's that? He said, that's, that's a flight company. Mm-hmm. And so right then my eyes lit up. So you immediately got a freedom boner right on the spot. You were like, I'm going to war (laughs) and I'm going to be on a minigun and I'm going to be fucking crushing motherfuckers on target. Yeah, that's what I thought. (laughs) I was like, man, I got I got a flight slot right, right out of the gate. I don't have to go into maintenance. Yeah. Because a flight company is what it what it is. It's a flight company. Yeah, that's what everybody aspires. Yeah, as an enlisted guy, yep. right? Because you're not a pilot, right? Um, but but I'm sure that on the enlisted side, that that's what guys aspire to be as part of the crew that's on the helicopter. Yep. You know that you're manning the guns. You're you're part of the team with the pilots. You're making shit happen. You're flying guys onto target. You're bringing guys back home. All that good stuff. Yep, absolutely. So graduation ends. We had it a day later after the last day of Green Platoon. And then uh, they say, they tell me where I'm in a report. My first sergeant actually told me he met me at my graduation and it was real brief. It mm-hmm. wasn't like, congratulations. Or yeah. just it was like, much. get ready to go to work, bro. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. I'm the fucking boss. Here's where you have to be. I'll see you there tomorrow. Bye. Mm-hmm. And uh, my, my family was there and he just kind of looked at him and nodded and just walked off. Yeah. And I was like... All right. Yeah. <laughs> and so the next morning, go through this compound, which is off of uh, Fort Campbell. It's attached to the airfield, but it's a separate uh, kind of entrance. Right. You need a special badge and everything to get in there. Sure. Um, get in, go to this office where I was told to meet uh, the first sergeant mm-hmm. and walk in, <clears throat> walk in through this doorway and then go down this hallway and it's completely empty. Uh, there's doors on either side, the left and the right side, and then uh, hanging up in the hallway, there's just tons of pictures, and I'm just like taken aback. I feel like I'm in a museum because I'm looking at some of these photos, and I'm like, well, that was the mission that they talked about in the news on this day, and yeah. here's, here's... There's a lot of history in the hallway. Uh, yes. Yeah. Tons. And um, so I'm just like, whoa, this is awesome. And I hear someone yell at me down the hallway, Burnett, get in here. I'm like, the fuck did someone know I was here? (laughs) And uh, so it comes from an office down at the end of the hall and the doorway to the right. And above the doorway, I see a sign that says PSG, platoon sergeant. Yeah. Like, okay. So I go in there and I meet my platoon sergeant for the first time. Sure. And introduces himself, tells me what he expects of me, asks me what I want out of this career. Uh, you know, kind of the formality stuff. Yeah, good stuff that yeah. like yeah, a leader wants to know about a subordinate when they come right. in. Like, what are goals? What do you want to do? Yeah. Where do you want to be? Where do you see yourself? All the good stuff. Yeah, and that interaction was night and day compared to my ex-platoon sergeant or section sergeant experience right. uh, back at my old unit. Right. Uh, so he proceeds to hand me a packet and he's like, here's all of the stuff you have to do before you can even set foot on an aircraft and start flying. And I'm like looking at through this pack and I'm like, come on. <laughs> Wait a minute. I thought I was just going to jump on the bird and fly away. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I go to Dunker school, Sear school, uh, and BMQ, which is basic mission qualification course where you actually learn the ins and outs of flying. Sure. Uh, three and a half to four month long course, uh, at Camel on the airfield on the compound. Right. Um, two TDY trips thrown in there where you're doing overwater training and then you're doing desert mountain stuff. Yeah. And then. So just going through selection wasn't enough. There's actually a lot of other specialized training that goes along with being a crew member in yep. 160th. Yeah, it's not. Okay. Which makes sense. I mean, yep. now that you're talking about it, it's like, hey, man, you're not just going to get on the helicopter and be you know, one of the integral parts of the team, like you got to actually go through some more training. So that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And that's where they weed out even more guys. Right. Um, Cause Dunker school in itself uh, sent two guys packing and that's where they hoist a mock Chinook over yep. this giant pool. Yep. Dump it in the water. Yep. You got to get out. Yep. Yeah. It, it flip you upside down. You're strapped in and it's like, okay, egress now. Yeah. And that, you know, being underwater is one thing, but being underwater strapped in upside down in an enclosed contraption, <laughs> yeah. it scared the shit out of me. Yeah, absolutely. But that's where you don't want to be for sure. <laughs> yeah. 
but the, the training is definitely an important part of the overall mission. And I learned that later on once we started actually doing, once I started doing overwater ops with some of the teams and, you know, starting to grasp why that training was important. 100%, yeah. Um, so get through all the training finally. And then it's not two weeks until I graduate BMQ. And I get a text message from my platoon sergeant said, you're leaving a week after you graduate from BMQ, mm-hmm. going downrange. And I'm like, excited. Yeah, you know? of I, course. I, my first deployment, I was like excited, but it wasn't like... It wasn't the same experience. Yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't like, yay, I get to go work on an aircraft. It was more like, yay, I got to go fucking contribute to the fight finally. Yeah, right. And so I just didn't know if I was prepared enough to do that though even though I've been flying every day in BMQ it's like nothing can prepare you for doing that downrange right Um, but it was a winter deployment it was uh, I ripped out in November okay uh, to CAF Kandahar Airfield right and uh, at the time we were working with uh, 3rd Ranger Battalion Mm -hmm. down there and the winter months are, are slower in terms of op tempo for missions just because right the weather makes things shitty for the bad guys there's yeah. not as much activity so. yeah yeah so I, I think that was a good um first deployment with me because it yeah. wasn't like the learning curve wasn't as steep right yeah uh so i thought yeah that's what i thought going <laughs> in and then we get there and it wasn't the second or the third flight we were on i was on left gun yeah um, which is, uh, so you're manning a minigun inside of the helo. Yep. Uh, so there's two minis on the front two doors and mm-hmm. two, two forties on the, on the back two doors, uh, windows towards the ramp. Okay. And so we're, we're chalk two. Yeah. Yeah. We're chalk two. No, I was chalk one. Excuse me. Chalk one, chalk two's behind us. Yep. And we're one minute out from landing in this guy's front yard. Yeah. Landing to the X. Yeah. And, um, I look at look off to the to out at my sector of fire. Yeah. Which is off to the nine o'clock. Yeah. And you know, when you're coming in, you're starting to slow down at one minute out. Yep. Everything becomes more clear. Sure. There is electricity out in Afghanistan. You know, some people might not believe that, but <laughs> <laughs> they right. do have electricity. So th- this village we were landing in had had street lights and some of the street lights uh, we're illuminating these rooftops. Right. And that's really bright under night vision. Sure. And so I see these three guys on a rooftop as we're one minute out. Yep. And I'm new and, you know, I know I'm supposed to call out something, but I, I don't know. I just kind of freeze up and I, I don't know what to say. Sure. Because, like, you know, I, we didn't say see this stuff training at the house. Yeah. Uh, so the pilot... Pilot uh, says something about the landing. Uh, oh, expect brownout. Yeah, which means the rotor yeah. wash is just going to cause a, a bunch st- of dust. Yeah, yeah it's going to limit visibility, which sucks for everybody. Yep. So I see one of the guys on the rooftop pick something up on his shoulder and fire, and I see this plume of smoke behind him, and I just realized he had just launched an RPG at chalk two. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. yeah. And I, I was like, oh my gosh, you can fit a grease BB in my asshole at that point. <laughs> I was like, gosh, what just... So the guy at left ramp, who um, was was a great guy and actually went to AIT with him, Mm -hmm. but he calls contact uh, 7, 8 o'clock. Sure, off uh, that side of the aircraft. But before he even called that, Chalk 2, I could just see tracer rounds just pelting the shit out of this rooftop. Right. And uh, left ramp... Uh, on our aircraft, the 240 starts firing, and I crank the minigun as far as I can to the left because it has it has bump stops. So I I depress the trigger and I just freaking crank, and these guys are just getting just getting pelted. I'm just watching these guys get pelted. Right. And all of a sudden, the the threat was taken care of. All of our aircraft are fine. Yeah. And we're 30 seconds from landing. Right. And so, so these guys, so these bad guys were on a rooftop. You guys are landing on the X, mm-hmm. getting ready to infill uh, a bunch of Rangers to go smash bad guys. Yep. 
and uh, this guy gets up, shoots an RPG at the second or the trail aircraft behind mm-hmm. you guys, yep. and then essentially you guys do you know what you were trained to do, which is you see a threat, um, you start to engage the threat. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And that was the first time that I had engaged in any real combat. And I right. was like, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't even comprehend what just happened because now the pilots are talking about the landing. Right. And I was just like, I, you know, now we're focusing on something else. So it's like that was completely out of my mind now. Right. Now I have to help call the aircraft down. Yeah, because right. In, in a brownout, the pilots are completely relying on the crew. You guys spotting. Yeah. Yeah. To, to see the ground. Yeah. Because, I mean, they have an altimeter in there, but it, in that type of condition, you want to know for certain mm-hmm. when the ground is coming. 100%. So you don't have a hard landing. So we land, drop them off, and yep. take off, and then head back. Logger is what it's called. We go land at, right. a, at a cop and wait for the rangers to... Give give the call for exfiltration. Yep. Yeah. And they call out a certain word to, to say that. I won't talk about that. But, yeah. Um, so they, they I hear that word over the radio, and then uh, all of a sudden we're going back in to pick them up at a, at a different LZ than what we dropped them off. Right. Load them up. Get back, head back to CAF and uh, mission complete. And that was a regular night's work in one sixtieth. Yeah. So and that for was, that was so my third I just want to I just want to go back over that for our listeners. So, you know, David's sitting here talking about it. You know, first deployment in one sixtieth. They're flying to target, which is you know, none of us ever went somewhere unless there were bad guys there. I just want to make sure that's understood. Uh, you're flying in. You know, you're a new guy on a gun, essentially you are watching something take place and then start to react to that. And then, you know, you're processing, holy shit, somebody just shot a rocket at the aircraft uh, behind my aircraft. And then everybody lights those bad guys up, which is obviously the right thing to do. Um, And then, you know, you guys are dropping off, you know, for a lack of better terms, the assault element. Uh, Those guys get off, they go and do what they do. You guys fly away go back to a loitering site and then you get, you know, the call to fly back in and then get the boys off target. Yep, exactly. And that was just a regular night's work in one sixtieth. I which I, you would probably soon find out, right? I was gonna say, <laughs> I didn't think it was regular then <laughs> because I'm used to working on aircraft in a hangar. Right. And so this is all new to me, being deployed as as a crew chief. Right. And meeting all the criteria to be able to do that and now actually doing it. Right. And seeing firsthand what being a crew chief in 160s is about, and only on my third night in country, we're getting... You're friggin', you're dealing death with yeah. the minigun. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and flying back after we pick up uh, the guys, um, um, I'm just thinking in my head, like, I, I felt like I fucked up and I let the, the crew down, because we, we muscle memory time and time again learned in BMQ... If there's a threat, you need to call distance and direction. Sure, right. Uh, no it's, it's like a battle drill, right? Yeah. It's like what what you grew up. It's like what I grew up in the infantry. Like once you make contact, you're giving a distance and a direction so you can deal with the threat. Yeah, but until you actually experience getting shot at, yeah, you won't know what your what your body is going to yeah, do. Yeah, it, I think it's natural. I, I can definitely identify, or I, I definitely share in what you're sharing right now in the sense of. Like nobody knows what it's going to be like until you've actually been in a gunfight and nobody know, you know, you can, you know, granted training is a big part of it. Right. So we, we talk about that a lot. Like you got to train to be prepared. Right. But there's also a very human, I think, element to that, which is like what you're actually going to do in the reaction process. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, part of that is, is a learning process, you know? So um, I think it's good that you're pointing that out. Yeah. And I felt miserable and I felt like <laughs> I, I didn't feel miserable for, right. for shooting. I'm laughing because I look at this as like, here's a young guy that, you know, just showed up to 160th and, you know, you're learning your job. You, you know, you've gone through this series of training. Then you show up, you're infilling guys on target. This potentially catastrophic thing happens with a guy shooting an RPG. Um, and then, you know, the bottom line is like, is that you sorted it out and then, you know, everybody returned fire to deal with the threat. So, uh, 
Yeah, it's crazy, man. And this yeah. is your third night in country. Yep. Um, and you're new to the unit and just starting to do the job. So you spent how many years in 160th? So how much time did you spend in 160th? Four. Four years. So 2010 to 2014. Okay, so you spent four years as a MH47 uh, crew chief, crew chief um, in the 160th. And then so I'm assuming that you know, through the rest of your time in the military, I mean, those were the, those were the types of things that you would experience because of the nature of what we were doing in special operations and being the tip of the spear. And you're essentially the aviation portion of the tip of the spear delivering guys on target, you know, to go after some of the, the worst enemies our country has seen. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and that was a winter deployment. So things only got more spicy yeah the more deployments <laughs> the more deployments i i went on you know right. and a lot of those being summer deployments when it's a poppy harvest season sure so when yeah. you get when you got a lot of guys sleeping on rooftops and yeah just high on their supply and just wanting to shoot at everything right uh and we were a big flying target yeah um so but no i i i learned a lot from that first night well third night right um and luckily my crew just made fun of me that i didn't say anything and they, <laughs> they called me machine gun bernie the rest of the the, the deployment and uh all was good uh, yeah good, good, good ribbing learned. that you get in the army yeah. that you obviously i can tell that um that you're sensitive about that and in, in the sense of like you want to do the right thing like you want to be like you want to be a team player you want to you want to make sure that you're uh, doing the right thing to help be a great part of the team. And I can tell that, you know, even now you talking about it, that that's something that I'm sure that that, that never happened again, as far as like seeing something and calling it out because you're like, man, like that was really, uh, an extreme learning experience that typically, you know, I've talked to other guys, uh, veterans that have similar experiences and they're like, holy shit, man, that was like the first time I was in the real deal. Yeah. And I learned a ton from it. So, um, but, you know, the Army always has its way. The team always has its way to never let you forget. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and bust your balls, um, which I think is what's that's part of the experience anyways. That's why you go is because you want to be around high performing individuals that hold you to a high standard. Yep. And so that's what I think kept all of us, you know, whether you were in 160th or SF or in the Ranger Regiment or any other units, um, that's what kind of keeps you, you know, to hold a high standard is your peers around you are upholding that standard as well. Yeah, I absolutely, 100% agree with that. And yeah, that that didn't happen again. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, your, your crew coordination only gets better after, after your uh, cherries popped on that first tour. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, you get back to the house and it's back to training. Yeah, right. Uh, so the op tempo was uh, something I had to get used to because in my old unit it was show up at this time, go home at this time, PT at this time. Yeah. And downrange it was show up at this time at the hangar. Yep. Go home, go to bed, come back. Right. But it wasn't anything like what 160th was in terms of training, deploying, training, deploying, training, right. deploying, teaching, you know, it was just constant nonstop. And, right. And I loved the shit out of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. So you spent four years in one sixtieth, and then you got to a point where, you know, we talked about it a little bit, uh, you know, prior to us recording the podcast, you got to a point where the op tempo, I think you said you had met your girlfriend who's now your wife. And then the op tempo, um, maybe wasn't conducive to having a, a you know, what you wanted in the future as far as having a family. So you made the decision to leave the military. Yep. And, you know, the op tempo is great if you're single. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but until you find somebody and want to start settling down. Right. Um, well, that word settle down does, doesn't exist in, right. in 160th or in the special operations community period. Right. Yeah. It's kind of a weird uh, phenomenon. I'll weigh in on this a yep. little bit because I... I spent a long time in the military and I have a lot of people that have asked me, you know, that are pursuing a career in special operations, whether it's aviation, you know, uh, as a Green Beret, a Ranger or whatever else they want to do as a SEAL or MARSOC Marine. And they've asked me a lot of questions. You know, I've, I've been married for a long time 
and I always say it was my wife that was the one that was squared away, um, not me. Uh, but you're right, man. Like to be a part of the special operations community in the United States military, it was it requires a lot of time. And I think a lot of people have this weird perception that you know that uh, some of that time is balanced and that you can have. And I'm not saying you can, it's a bad family life, but I, I want to reiterate the fact that, you know, trying to balance those two things is really difficult. And that, um, you know, typically what ends up happening is one of those gets more time and attention than the other. And because you're a warrior, you can guess which one gets more time and attention. So that was a lesson that I learned. It took a long time to understand and learn that. And then when I left the military, you know, I realized how much time that I missed with my family, with my wife and with my kids. And I don't, you know, there's a lot of people that might turn around and say that they regret certain things. I don't regret my service at all, you know, um, but if, but, you know, missing some of those important things with your, with your spouse, with your children, um, you know, that's impactful for not only, you know, for me personally, but for my wife and my children. So, for those of you that are listening that are thinking about trying to get into this type of a job profession, you need to go in with your wide, with your eyes wide open and understand what you're getting involved in. Don't get me wrong, I don't take back anything that I did, and I'm sure that you don't either because of the experience and how that grew us as men. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I am always trying to be, and so is Mike and everybody else that works with Fieldcraft that has that experience, true, uh, you know, educators of what the experience is like and and to go in with your eyes wide open yeah absolutely and um so that's that's a huge sacrifice you know yeah if if this is something that you someone is thinking about getting into they definitely need to keep in mind that it's not just you going into it i mean if you already have a family there's going to be a lot of sacrifices but uh you know just like you i wouldn't trade it for the world sure yeah. So uh, parted ways then with 160th in 2014. Yeah. Uh, hit my six-year contract. And yep. uh, I just got um, bombarded with uh, higher up saying, hey, we'll, we'll, we'll fly you over the pond so you get your reenlistment bonus tax-free. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we'll give you this much. So they were trying to retain you. They, they, didn't, they, they didn't want you to get out. Yeah. They which is normal, to. especially in units – you know, that are at the tip of the spear is they want to retain their people because they put a lot of time, energy and money um, into doing that. So you basically, you know, had to make that difficult decision, which, you know, at some point we all do. I mean, the end state of that game um, is, is several different things. One of them, you could be killed in action. Right. And we have we know plenty of guys that um, that ended up happening, too, which is obviously, you know, pretty impactful. Um, for their families and everybody else, their friends and teammates. Uh, You make the decision to get out, right? And then you decide to do something else in your life. You medically retire like I did. You retire. But the end state of that game is that there's not a lot of old guys that are in that game. Mm -hmm. You know, at some point, everybody has to make the decision or the decision is made for them that they're going to leave. So, um, so, so you got out and then, you know, here we are fast forward to 2018 and we want to talk about something big that you have going on, which is um, something that you and I have, you know, conversed over social media and then talked over text and over the phone. So you have a book coming out about actually being in the 160th Aviation Regiment. So tell us, um, tell me a little bit about that process and where you're at in it. So the book took me um, about three years to write. Okay. And uh, just because it's, it's not an easy feat. Right. And you want to make sure you do uh, do right by your brothers. Because right. by no means am I God's gift to war. And <laughs> I wanted to um, make this book more about the men that I served with than right. about myself. While at the same time highlighting what it takes to be at the tip of the spear. Sure. So I highlight a lot of the training before I had to go through, before I can actually call myself uh, a 160th crew chief. Sure. Uh, highlight five deployments I went on with them. Yeah. And then the most important piece of the book was my transition and my struggle with alcohol at okay. the end of the book. Okay. And, um, you know, it's something I, I wouldn't talk about if, if, uh, if I 
ha- if I wasn't sober. But yeah. since I got sober, it, it it's easier for me to talk about now. Right. And if if I can talk about it and share my experience with alcohol, depression, PTSD, sure, uh, in the hopes of helping another veteran going through the same thing, yeah, then I'm gonna fucking do it. Yeah. Um, so I, well, I think, I think it's, uh, I just want to jump in on that real fast. So it's, it's not only, you know, I mean, I listened to you talk and we talked a whole bunch before we recorded the podcast and, you know, it's not only sharing, uh, that experience, I think with other veterans, right. That that's probably the primary motivation, but also a deeper understanding of, for the American public. Obviously we know when you write a book, anybody can read it, you know what I mean? And yeah. And, uh, you know, that book is still going through the vetting process right now at Special Operations Command. It's made it past the Pentagon. Mm-hmm. Um, it's now at U.S. SOCOM at McDill Air Force Base. Um, and there's a vetting process that goes uh, with all books that are written by ex-Special Operations veterans um, to make sure that, you know, there's no secrets or what we call tactics, techniques, and procedures that are shared in the book. You made it through the first vetting process at the Pentagon. It's at U.S. SOCOM now. Um, yeah, which is, you know, I, we talked about it a little bit before it's a slow process, but, um, but it's in that vetting process now. And so, um, I think it's interesting though, that, you know, for a guy like you to write a book like this, like not only is it important to help veterans, but it's important to educate the American public on what that experience is like, right? We don't have to talk about specific times and places, and all the nitty gritty details that are classified anyways. Right. But just giving the American public a look at what is it, what is it like to be a crew chief in, you know, the most uh, decorated uh, special aviation unit in the United States military. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's what I wanted to do with this book. Uh, right. Shed light on an MOS that is rarely talked about. And if the civilian does ask me what I did in the army and I tell him crew chief, they'll look at me like I'm a fucking idiot. (laughs) But if I tell him I was a door gunner on a helicopter, they're like, oh man, that's cool. Yeah, right. (laughs) Um, So in writing this book, I I hope to put a lot of misconceptions by the wayside and uh, for people to get a better understanding of what a crew chief actually is and does. Mm -hmm. And some people think it's just a guy behind a gun or it's just a guy who helps people on the aircraft when you go pick them up. Right. But there's a lot more to the job than people give credit for or people even know. And so that that's one point that I really wanted to hit home with this book is awesome. Uh, a special operations crew chief in yeah. 160th yeah. is this. Yeah, that's awesome, man. So the name of the book is what? Making a Night Stalker, The Triumph and Near Tragedy of a Special Operations Aviator. Cool, man. So, uh, so we don't, so I think one of the unfortunate things is we don't know how much longer it's going to take to go through the vetting process at SOCOM. But I think, you know, based off of the conversation that we had, we, uh, you have a a pretty good feeling that it's going to make it through the vetting process. And then that book will be released. You did some individual funding or asked for what was the campaign that you kind of that you did uh, to, to get the book funded. Yeah, so I did a Kickstarter campaign with right. the $8,200 goal, and we exceeded that. Awesome. Uh, and that's going to help cover formatting costs, right. cover art design, right. uh, Audible, because I want to come out of the gates with an Audible version too, because I know cool. not a lot of people like to read. Yeah, Audibles. or can read, so they have to <laughs> <Right>. listen. <laughs> right, and... Um, two final edits as well. And, okay. and those things actually really start to add up when you self-publish versus traditionally publish. Right. And so I'm fortunate en- yeah. enough to have a, a, enough of a following on, yeah. on social media that right. people are there to support me and mm-hmm. want this to see this thing come to fruition. Right. They want to the see the book line. published. Yeah. yeah. Which is cool. I, uh, that's huge. Um, we share that same sentiment at Fieldcraft Survival. That's why I wanted to have you on the podcast. Um, you know, I appreciate the fact that you came on, David. Thank you very much. Thank you for your service. Um, it is definitely, uh, you're definitely, you know, part of an elite aviation unit. And so we've never actually done a podcast, you know, with a 160th uh, a pilot or crew chief or, you know, team member from 160th. And so, I think this is an interesting, uh, you know, look behind what it's like to be in the 160th Aviation Regiment, what it takes to get there, 
and then also your willingness to share your personal story you know about your service in the unit and then what that looked like when you got out we know that um, you know veterans on different levels have different uh, you know different things that they try to work through when they transition out of the military and so I'm appreciative of the fact that you shared your story we're excited about the release of the book um, for everybody listening when the when the book makes it through vetting at SOCOM and it actually it publishes and then we have a release date we will circle back around and make sure that we talk about the book remind you guys about it uh, again it's called making a night stalker what was the other part of it? So making a night stalker. The triumph and near tragedy of a special operations aviator. Got it. Triumph and near tragedy of a special operations aviator. Uh, again, I'm with David Burnett, and he was a crew chief on an MH-47 in the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment. So we're wrapping up this podcast right now. I want to make sure that everybody knows where they can follow you on your social media. So what is your Instagram uh, account name? It's at making a night stalker, but instead of spaces, it's underscores. Okay, so at making underscore a underscore night stalker. Got it. Yep. Hey guys, uh, real happy to have David on the podcast. Uh, I consider it a, pl- a privilege to be able to talk to guys that have experience um, in special operations, especially the Special Operations Aviation Regiment. Super happy you came on the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. Uh, thank you, man. Appreciate it. Um, you guys know the deal. If you're out there uh, trying to survive this crazy world, don't forget our slogan, stay alert, stay alive. Stay alive.